Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I've been on a hiatus for a couple of weeks, but I'm really glad to be back. And I'm especially glad to be back because my guest is my friend, Kent Greenfield, a professor of law and dean's distinguished scholar at Boston College. Kent is a graduate of Brown and the University of Chicago Law School. He clerked for Justice Souter. We'll get to that at some point because Justice Souter is one of my favorites. Um, he's written three books, one of which, Corporations Are People Too and Should Act Like It, I think is one of the most important books written about constitutional law in the last 20 years. He's worked at Covington and Burling, where I was a messenger in college. I don't know if Kent knew that. Um, Kent, welcome, to, that. welcome to Supreme Mess. Oh, it's such a joy to be here with you, Eric. And, and you know, I, I think you're one of the smartest uh, fairest thinkers in this business. And, you know, I, I don't think I've ever told you this, but, um, you know, I, you probably have this too, but there's like a, um, uh, like a, uh, a jury who lives in my brain. Like, you know, who do I, who do I really try to ask about things? And even if you, if you don't get a phone call or an email from me, you're always living in my brain rent free, but like, what would Eric Siegel think about this? You know? So, uh, well, that's you, you're one of the one of the people in my mental jury. I don't know whether that gives you any comfort or not, but but it's it's it, I, I say it as a compliment. Well, that's incredibly flattering. I really appreciate it. I also neglected uh, to say during your introduction, you are a special scholar because you are an expert in both constitutional law and corporate law, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. And you're one of the few. There are a few others, but you you're you're my go-to guy for everything related to anything constitutional law slash corporate law. But of course, you're much broader than that. Let's begin. Um, as people who listen to this podcast know, I do a rough roadmap with my guests, but we veer off and on and everything. And um, one of the things that we decided we would start with, and I'm glad you're going to do this because I'm sure people are sick of me doing it. Um, <laughs> you want to do a little bit of a rant about the Supreme Court. So go. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it, it's just I, I just felt like if we're going to talk about constitutional law for an hour, we've got to start with with the Supreme Court, which is you know, in the title of your of your podcast, because we're in a moment, an historical moment that I think it's worth pausing to reflect about, which is I think the court is probably at its at its um, um, deepest point in terms of legitimacy with regard to the uh, the the political community in America today, and it's, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. You know, we've got uh, the the overturning of Roe that is imminent. Uh, you know, as we'll as we just learned yesterday, the the wall of separation between church and state is is in ruin. Um, the court is going to um, decimate the the power of the administrative state to address climate change. I think in the next week or two, the court is is. Um, constitutionalizing the ability of corporations and others to discriminate on the basis of, of, of sexual orientation and other, and other character, uh, irrelevant characteristics. I think in the, um, uh, over the last few years and will, will in, the, in, the, in the coming days. So I, and I think the, the, the thing that we should sort of take note of is that this has been a product of sort of a 50-year or more effort on the part of the GOP, the Federalist Society, to really to make the judiciary a, a an arm of the Republican Party in ways that we have never seen in our in you know in, in modern history. You know, we we've um, I think sixteen. Um, I think I might be off by. I think it's sixteen out of the last twenty one Supreme Court appointments have been made by Republican presidents. Yeah, but the um, the Republican. Uh, nominee for president that's only won the popular vote once in 30 years, and that's 2004. Right. 
So you know we we have a we have a polity that is uh, sort of purplish, right? That's in the middle. That that um, that's slightly left of center, I think. But we have a court that is the most conservative court that we've seen since 1936. Uh, the and and the, but the but the um, sort of the, the PR of the court is like this it, that is this instrument of of rights and the instrument of the of the left. Um, and they're you know stopping politics, but in fact, the last time that there was a majority of of Democratic appointees on the court was 1969. So we had more than 50 years of a, um, a a court that's mostly Republican, that's mostly a you know a a protector of the the powerful, and it's it's going to get worse before it gets better. And the other thing to say is that, and I heard of you, I've heard you say this on your podcast quite a bit. The difference about this court and the court that we saw even 30 years ago at the time of Casey, you know, Casey, that key plurality opinion mm-hmm. uh, that, that, um, that saved Roe at least for 30 years yeah. uh, was a Souter-Kennedy-O'Connor opinion. They were all appointed by Republican presidents. Yeah. There was a time when the, the court the, who appointed a justice did not mat, map onto their ideological commitments or that they were open to persuasion – in the hard cases. I don't think that seems to be true here. I mean, maybe with some, um, uh, in some circumstances, you have the chief switching sides. I heard you and uh, Steve Laddick talking about this some. But, you know, the, even there, you know, the, the chief, chief Justice John Roberts is among the most conservative chiefs we've had in 100 years. Right. And, uh, you know, he wrote Shelby County. He wrote Parents Involved um, uh, and where he said, you know, the, stop, the way to stop racial discrimination is to stop discriminating on the, on the basis of race. And he's so, in my view, so reactionary on terms, in terms, on terms of affirmative action and race and the like. And religion. The, the, rare, the rare vote on Obamacare or whatever doesn't really save him, in my, in my view. But what matters about this court is that it's an ideologically uh, aligned court in ways that we have not seen um, uh, for a hundred years. So I, I have one response to that. Um, uh, I, have, I have an addition to that. And then I want to push back a little bit on, on one thing you said. Uh, one th- my, my add-on to you is were it not for the fact that not Judge – forget Bork for a second. But were it not for the fact that Judge Ginsburg, not RBG, but a different Judge Ginsburg on the mm-hmm. D.C. Court of Appeals, who was incredibly conservative, who was the – after Bork got defeated, the next nominee was Ginsburg – Incredibly conservative. It turned out he had to leave the um, nomination because he smoked pot in law school with right. students. Um, were it not for that, we would have had this court then, almost this court then. So I, I, Justice Kennedy being the key vote from 2006 to 2018 and Justice Kennedy being the key vote in all four gay rights cases that ever happened, that gays won in the Supreme Court, um, is only luck. If Ginsburg gets that seat, this court's even – has been conservative longer. So that's just, and that's just like luck. I'm not sure luck is the right word, but whatever it is. But I want to push back a little bit. Um, I've been do, I, I found newspapers.com recently. It's a great site. <laughs> and they have like infinite newspapers from infinite time periods. And I've been going back. To, I may write a paper on this. It turns out that if you were in any way progressive, by definition, by the terms of the time, in 1857, you were so offended by Dred Scott. 
And it turns out that if you were anywhere near progressive in the late 19th century, you were so offended, and you've written about this, by the Supreme Court turning the 14th Amendment from a provision protecting blacks to a provision protecting railroads and corporations. It turns out that if you're progressive in 1935, you are apoplectic, and you think that this crisis of the Great Depression is going to be destroyed by this, is going to be made worse by the Supreme Court striking down FDR's um, that those are three time periods where moderates, people on the left, and people on the far left, all were just insanely angry at the Supreme Court. So I'm not sure. I, I agree this moment of time is different because of the partisan. There were, there were very conservative Democrats back then and liberal Republicans and all that. Um, and, even into the, and even in the yep. 60s, 70s, and 80s, we had Justice White appointed by Kennedy but being pretty conservative and all yep. that. But the reality is the court has been a nightmare for the left through almost its entire history. I, com- I completely agree with you. So, so I will take that amendment and, and sign on to it. I, I okay. think that's completely right. And, and, and the reality is that, that the Warren Court for about 15 years steered the courts uh, uh, in, a, in a different direction. Right. We were one vote away from recognizing education and voting as, as a fundamental right of, of, of recognizing uh, poverty as a suspect classification. And we were one vote away from those things. We were, we were very close to, to, um, uh, to, to the holding that, that uh, capital punishment was, a, was always a violation of the, of the, the Eighth Amendment. But, um, but it seems like the, the, um, the persona or the, the image of the Supreme Court to the average American is still locked into that 15-year period. Yes. But you're absolutely right. For most of the court's history, it's been a reactionary force. Uh, you know, I, I, this just this semester in teaching introductory con law was the first semester I really introduced the students to those cases in the at the post Fourteenth Amendment pre Lochner cases, yes. Cruikshank, the civil rights cases, slaughterhouse yes. cases. Horrible. You know, where with the court was just like we're going to take, we're going to see what the Fourteenth Amendment was intended to do, the hope um, that was embedded in that amendment, and completely crush it with a hammer. You know, it, it is not about it's not about uh, privileges and immunities, not about fundamental rights. It's, it's about uh, you know the 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 rights of of regulated businesses to to assert constitutional rights to not be regulated. And and um, I've talked about this before on this podcast. I'm not going to go through it again. But for those listening, Adam Winkler has written a, a book about corporations too, and 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 he talks about how it came to be that corporations were persons. And that yep. story is twisted and crazy and um, people should – It's a brilliant should, book. It's a brilliant book that Adam wrote. Yeah, and people should get into that. All right. Um, so, so we've been talking at kind of 60,000 feet. Um, let's get down on the ground here. Uh, just, this, we're taping this on a, on a Wednesday. It will probably be released on Friday. Just yesterday, the court decided a case uh, involving your neck of the woods, involving the state of Maine. Why don't you tell us about it and, and your feelings about it, and then I'm going to rant about it for a couple minutes because this is an area of the law that I've actually litigated, um, and I think my experience might be interesting to people, but you go ahead and set it up. Well, now now I'm em- embarrassed to be put on the spot to set it up <laughs> since uh, I'm, I'm being called on in class to <laughs> describe the facts of the case. Um, so, so the case really is about um, Maine's practice, uh, the fact that Maine is such a rural state. Like you know, it's, apparently it's the most rural state in the in the in the country. Yeah. And for anybody who's been up there, like once you pass Portland, there's not much there. Right. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. 
But the, um, the, the main constitution, state constitution, um, uh, protects the right of education for every young person in the state, and there's an obligation, an affirmative obligation on the part of the state to provide a free and public education. Of course, that free and public education, uh, because of the, the, the promises of the federal constitution, must be secular in nature. Like you can't you, uh, at you, least so you far. Can't have a pub- <laughs> so far, you, so right. You can't have a public uh, schooling that that's religious in nature. So it's secular in nature. And so the the problem that that the state faced was like, look, we got a bunch of kids spread around in these really rural areas. Um, there's not enough of them to have a a public school that's close by. So what we'll do is we'll create a subsidy system, so that if you're you know living way up in Bethel, Maine, which and there's you know five kids, what we'll do is we'll, we'll let you go to the, the private school. We'll let you pick a private school. You can even go to the private school over the line in New Hampshire or you can do um, – you know, you can drive to, to uh, Portland or you can even actually go out of state and we will pay for your private education if you don't have a public school you know, close by. But the state um, of Maine has, has long said for decades, you know, but, but uh, in order to mimic what the state provides – in public schools, the, the private schools that we subsidize you to go to have to be um, secular in nature. You can't, we can't, we're not going to pay out of the public budget uh, for you to go to a school that, that as, has part of its curriculum a proselytizing or uh, educational, um, religious educational aspect. Sorry, but the way you describe that all sounds so damn reasonable. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Of course, uh, you know, uh, and of course it is, right? Like, <laughs> and, you know, the state is like, well, you know, we want to be extra careful on the establishment side because you know, we yeah. don't want to, we want to err on the side of not establishing a religion and taking these constitutional norms and, and promises and commitments, uh, uh, and, you know, to heart. And so what the, what the case comes up is that there are a couple of families in various parts of the state that, you know, look, we don't want to go to our local private secular school. We want to go to this Baptist school in Bangor, and then there was another school. I can't remember where, where it was in the state. But we want the state to subsidize us to go to a private religious school, whereas part of the curriculum, the, the, uh, our kids will be taught about uh, you know, our religious faith. Um, and and the, uh, the, uh, the state said, no, we're not going to subsidize you to go to a religious school. The First Circuit upheld uh, the state's ability Seems to do that. Seems reasonable. In this, again, reasonable. And the, yesterday the, the court um, overturned the First Circuit and said that the, if you're going to have a subsidy system, uh, you, can't dis, you can't not subsidize the religious kids to go to the religious school. So in other words, once you, you don't have, a, have to have a subsidy system, but once you do, you can't discriminate against, against religious uh, claimants. And so the, uh, what this ends up being is that any time you have a – you know, and I think the, the problem is that this is not just going to be about schools. It's about all kinds of subsidy systems. Yep. If you have a subsidy system that excludes for fear of establishment clause worries or uh, for fear of establishment clause concerns, you don't want to include religious claimants in that, that you can't do that anymore. If you're going to have a subsidy system, you've got to include uh, religious people. And what's, what's really um, a big change in this is that – the Establishment Clause has been weakening uh, for for decades, and the Roberts Court have, has been especially um, uh, uh, reductive in what the what the Establishment Clause means for for over a decade now. 
But what this means is that this is a, a line that has never really been crossed. Uh, and my old boss, uh, David Souter, would always think, you know, the, the real, the real, where the rubber hits, hits the road is where money. Yes. What, what can the state use their money for? And what must the state uh, use money for? It's one thing to not discriminate against who gets a classroom or whether, whether the prayer club can meet after school, if all the other clubs can meet after school. But once you start using money from the public treasury to fund religious education, then that's a violate. That has to be a violation of the Establishment Clause, at least if you're an originalist, because <laughs> that's what that's what the the framers really were worried about. At least if you're a textualist, because you know establishment of a religion, funding religious schools, you would think that that's an Establishment Clause. But what's what this court is doing now is that it's reduced the Establishment Clause to to just like I don't know if there's much left of it anymore. Maybe right. like you can't pass a statute that says everybody's got to go to a Catholic church every Sunday. Although Justice Thomas to, says Georgia could do that. Georgia could right exactly. So right, we can come back to that. But right, <laughs> Justice Thomas like this is just a federal. Yeah. Uh, this is just a limitation on, on federal yeah. uh, government. You know, the Second Amendment now that applies to states. But yes. the First Amendment now that yes. does not. Yeah. Uh, but but I think but the but the the court instead has become. Um, has made this the the free exercise clause so muscular and robust that any uh, distinction that the court wants to make between um, religious claimants and other claimants, then that's a, that's discriminatory, and they're very attentive to that kind of discrimination, even if it's not intentional. And 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 so like um, you know, so for example, the um, all the COVID cases where you you know you, we're not we we're not allowing any home-based um, uh, meetings in California. We're going to restrict any public meetings during COVID. Um, but then the religion, but then the, the churches sue and says, well, this is just discrimination against us. And the court says, yes, that's discrimination against you, even though you're being treated like everybody else. And so here, part of the problem, you know, is like, what is, what is the, what is it that the state is providing? And in my view, the state is providing a secular education. That's the yep. promise of the, the main constitution. But the court now says, no, you can provide – you actually not – you're providing a secular institution in public schools. But once you go beyond that, you have to provide a religious education for those students who want it. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's really crazy. Uh, about a month ago, I wrote a blog post saying – talking about how the Roberts Court has read the Establishment Clause out of the constitution – on uh, Wednesday of this week, my, my friend Mike Dorf wrote a piece called Is the Establishment Clause Unconstitutional? <laughs> Which I think, <laughs> I think the Roberts Court does think that it is. Um, I, I, I want to say a couple words about this because when I was at the Department of Justice working for the George H.W. Bush administration, we had a huge case. My client was the U.S. Department of Education and the co-defendants were the state of California, the city of San Francisco, the archdiocese of San Francisco. Um, and an intervener was the United States Catholic Conference. And we were all on the same side defending the idea that under the Establishment Clause, the government has the right to give generally available aid to religious schools if it wants to. They don't have to do it. But the issue back then was could you give any aid to religious schools? And the answer was only books and diagnostic tests. That was about it. Any other kind of aid wasn't even allowed, much less required. And that was 1990, Kent. So that's only, you know, I'm old, but that, that was the year before I t started teaching at Georgia State. Um, and we made all these establishment clause arguments. And this is the point I want to make. My co-counsel 
who was really the most senior lawyer of all of the people working on the case, um, and who was Justice Earl Warren's law clerk during and wrote Flass versus Cohen, which is a very big case in the religion area. Um, he was as pro religious schools as any person could possibly be. He was the lawyer for the U.S. Catholic Conference. In his wildest fantasies, he never dreamed the free exercise clause would require this kind of aid. It was, he, was, he was totally committed to arguing the aid was not prohibited by the Establishment Clause. But we never, we, we, we used to fly from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco, five hours, whatever it was, at least 15 times discussing this issue left, right, sideways, and backwards. And he never, ever thought the Free Exercise Clause could possibly be used in this context. And just 30 years later or so, here we are. And it's just another example of the judicial aggression of the Roberts Court. Do you agree with that? Well, yeah, I, I, I do. In fact, this prompts me to, to sort of make a broader point if we can fly back up to 50,000 yeah. feet for, yeah. again. Because... You know, one of the things that I think we're going to be talking about as law professors over the next, you know, portion of our careers, especially after Dobbs overturns Roe in the next week or two, yep. is, you know, is, is, the, is the court a political institution? You know, to, to what extent is, is law different from politics? And I think this is a, a, something that's on my students' mind. It's on my mind. It affects how I teach. It affects how you teach, I'm sure. And I think what's... The one thing that I, I, I sort of want to be a contrarian about is, 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 is the sense that where we are now is not a, a, a success of politics in the sense that it's a, it's a success of majoritarian political will. Instead, it is a success of persuasion that has taken a generation or more uh, that's, that's been operationalized in law schools in the judiciary, um, in the broader public press, in the broader media. And the reason why, you know, Neil Gorsuch um, and Amy Coney Barrett and, and Brett Kavanaugh are going to be voting to strike down Roe is not because of some political commitments that they have, but because they were convinced, yep. they were reached when they were law students or before, and persuaded that originalism was a way to constrain judges or that, or that textualism was the way. And not everyone is – I mean I don't mean to say that everyone is acting in complete good faith or, or not everyone is acting in, in the absence of complete good faith. Right. But this is a triumph of persuasion and, and argumentation. And to my progressive students and my progressive colleagues who are despondent um, and despairing these days and, they, and we all have reason to be, the answer is not to give up and say it's all politics. The answer is no, you got to double down and spend – the next generation persuading the next group of law professors, law students, judges that they got it wrong and to return to, to, this, uh, to, a, to a different era. That's interesting. I, I have complicated reactions to that, as you might imagine. Um, I do want to mention I was asked numerous times over the last 48 hours, why is the former Judge Ludig, who was at one time a short lister for the Supreme Court, testifying at the, you know, the hearings about uh, January 6th, a, a very conservative Republican judge effectively throwing the Republican Party under the bus, which he did. Um, and my answer was something that I had written about a few, uh, couple years ago, which is very relevant to what you're saying, which is the reason I think Judge Ludig, former Judge Ludig, could do that 
is because he graduated law school before the Federalist Society was born, as did Anthony Kennedy, as did, and this is my podcast, so once a podcast, I have to mention Judge Posner, uh, as did Richard Posner. So, and as did Judge Wilkinson. Did David Souter, right? Like, David like, Souter, right. So we, that's a great example. So we have all these Republican judges who, who by no means were liberal. I mean, nobody, I mean, Posner issued some liberal decisions at the end, but over the course of his career, no one's going to call Posner a liberal. No one's going to call Wilkinson a liberal, Ludwig a liberal. But they all had their beliefs formed before the Federalist Society really took off. And I think that's a big explainer for this. What, what, what do you think? And what do you mean by that? That 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 the the, the I do think that the Federalist Society it was a game changer. Yeah. Um, but but it, it, the Federalist Society is not just. Um, I, I don't think I, I think that their success has included a real effort of 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 sort of shifting the Overton window. Yep. Of persuading people, of educating uh, uh, law students into. The, the virtues of this perspective. Now, now there may be some people uh, who think, you know, I'm an originalist in part because I have cons- ideologically conservative goals, and that is the mechanism by which I conserve those right. goals. Um, but I think if, you, if the, I think they don't say that uh, in their Federal Society, um, you know, conferences or right. student, you know, uh, lunch meetings. I'm sure. Like like, um, like like me, you go to a bunch of you end up being the progressive yes. guy on, at the table at the yes. Federalist Society yes. uh, uh, pizza parties. Yes, and you know the, the and I think they've done a much better job than the uh, you know the, the ACS or before then the National Lawyers Guild or the um, uh, in in sort of spending their time to cultivate these these sort of deeply held. Um, and internally co- consistent and coherent um, worldviews about the law. But, but that's the thing that's so frustrating. So I, I, I did a FedSoc thing in Cincinnati a couple of weeks ago, uh, and the moderator was Judge uh, Bush of the Sixth Circuit, who was incredibly conservative, and made some really crazy statements before he was confirmed about gays and, and just a very conservative guy. He was very pleasant that evening. Um, but what I, want, what, I, what, what I made everybody laugh because— my judicial restraint philosophy, which I've had for 30 years, um, I would have been welcomed in the Federalist Society in 1984. I mean, it, the, the driving force of the Federalist Society when it was born, Calabresi, Meese, Bork, and Scalia, was at least on paper, we have to stop the Supreme Court from doing so much. They must do less. Right, um, right. And today, the Federalist Society wants the court to do everything. <laughs> And when I mentioned that to this crowd in Cincinnati, that was totally full of, sorry, um, that was totally full of FedSoc lawyers and students. When I mentioned that and then had dinner afterwards with a bunch of them, their reaction was very interesting. And for the first time, I think you might find this hopeful, for the first time, um, several, including a faculty member who was a FedSoc faculty member, said to me, there is a growing disconnect between the leadership and the rank and file. And that's why I continue to do FedSoc events, because I w- if Leonard Leo invited me to dinner, I'm saying no. And if Leonard Leo invited me to do a national FedSoc event where he was going to be present, I'd probably say no. But I always say yes to everything else, including national events that, that they have, um, when the leadership is not present. 
because I think there are, I have numerous, dozens and dozens and dozens of Fed Sox students over the years who are pro-choice and think Roe is, is arguably, maybe it's wrong, maybe it's right, but it's close, you know. Um, and I don't know if that's ever going to, um, if that disconnect is going to get stronger. I hope it does. Um, well, I think one of, one of the things that's going to be really interesting watching in the, in the coming years, you know, and, and if we can be detached or dis- disassociate ourselves from it, from the horror yeah. uh, enough to sort of think, oh, that's interesting. You know, the, the, div- the, the schisms uh, among the right between the different factions um, and among the different factions of the right are going to be fascinating. The, the textualist versus the originalist yep. uh, divide is going to be the institutionalist, the, those who are um, – who are um, who want to, the court to be institutionally restrained as opposed to interpretively restrained? It's going yep. to be interesting. You know, we had Gorsuch writing Bostock, right? right? Uh, uh, expanding statutory protections for, um, uh, for uh, under the word sex to include gender identity. Yeah. That's because of his his sort of um, you know tough minded textualism. No, it's not. And that is complete. You know, Thomas is never going to sign on to that 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 hold. That's that's not why Gorsuch did it either, though. Just for the record, no. Nah. Yeah, Gorsuch did it because he probably knows some gay people he likes. That's why. Right, right. Well, no, there, there's no doubt about it. But <laughs> but the the um, but the way that you uh, the way you, that, that you talk about it, it's going to be interesting because there's going to be these schisms that you know that w- when you're in the opposition, you can be united in opposition and you don't have to tease out these various things. But but if you're in, if you've got a six vote majority, um, you have to you have to. Um, uh, th- I think there's more. There's more of a of an engine behind the possible dissensions among those six. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I just wish, and you know, I've spent the last fifteen years of my life on this. Um, I wish we could talk about constitutional law without the baggage of originalism. I really do. Um, yep. They don't believe in it. They do what they want. And the best example we just talked about it. There is no plausible originalist basis um, supporting. Three Roberts Court's decisions on the free exercise clause: the playground case, uh, the Montana case, for those people who are familiar, and this case. There is just, and yet Thomas signs on, Kavanaugh signs on, Gorsuch, signs, and there's no originalist. And by the way, it's amazing in the opinion that came out on Tuesday. Major decision changing American law, telling Maine it can't do what it wants to do. You would think federalism would come into play there. Not an originalist syllable. No reference to right. any originalist materials, just the prior two cases that had no originalism in, in them either. I'm sorry, I'm ranting, but it just it makes me no, so no, mad. But, but that's, that's even more true when it comes to the free speech cases, right? right? Like the, at, at, you know, at, at the time of the framing, the protection of the free speech clause is basically no prior restraint. Exactly. But, you know, you could throw people in jail after the fact for, yep. speak, for, for speaking up. Yep. But so, you know, but yet we have the most libertarian and aggressively libertarian court in our history and in the history of the world when it comes to speech, but they can't base that on originalism because there's there's no originalist basis for it. Now, I'm not an originalist, so I ha- think you have to think about uh, the the theories of the animating theories of the free speech clause in order to give it some meaning. But the court, and it's you're right. Like pick out uh, any free speech case, there's not an originalist site in there anywhere. Right. Right. Affirmative action, too, by the way, obviously. Um, okay. Right. Um, I do want to so, – so one of the things that I love about your career and that I think makes you so special is um, uh, you have this expertise. You, you know corporate law. 
and you know constitutional law. I have a colleague here, Ann Tucker, who I think you know. Um, mm-hmm. And when Citizens United came out and other times, Ann, Ann, Ann rant, seems, she knows I'm a ranter. So, so Ann tells me all the time that the Supreme Court knows nothing about corporate law. She says, Siegel, you think they know nothing about con law. You should be a corporate law professor because <laughs> they, they know even less about corporate law. Right. And, and I think she, she and you have convinced me of that over the years. The title of your book, Corporations Are People Too and They Should Act Like It, some people will see that title. And say, oh, so maybe Citizens United was correct, or or or, or maybe corporations should have the same free speech mm-hmm. rights as people. Um, that's mm-hmm. not what your book says. What is your view about um, the appropriate? We all agree that the government cannot break into the New York Times without a or the Fox News, and without mm-hmm. a warrant, right? Go rummage through their files. Now, I think if you don't agree with that, we leave the leave the pot because you, you know. But what is the appropriate balance between corporate rights, free speech rights, and constitutional law? Yeah, it's such a you know it's it's the question that has really animated so much of my work for yeah. a decade or more, yeah. you know. And um, again, I keep throwing back to your conversation with Steve Loddick. You know, you were yeah. talking about you know I, you, we, you wish that you could be a little less relevant, but but a little happier in your work. Yes, I feel the same way about Citizens United. You know, Citizens United may have doomed our democracy, but it was great for my career. And so because uh, because you know there, I feel that way every day. By United, the way. Go ahead. What I feel that way every day, almost right. Um, you know, before since United, I had you know one leg, one foot in the corporate law world, and one foot in the con law world. And you know, I could say, well, you know, there's they're both both about big institutions and the governance norms that govern these big institutions. But but it was all, always mostly just an argument that to just explain that I'm interested in both. Right. Uh, but but after Citizens United, it became clear that you that that. You couldn't really decide these cases of the constitutional rights of big, these big institutions without knowing a lot about corporate law and a lot about constitutional law. And so I think the, the response to, of the left after Citizens United was um, mostly just sort of to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like the, um, the corporation should not have constitutional rights of any kind. There are all these um, state-level and local-level initiatives around the country, including here in Massachusetts, that, that articulated – the, um, you know, the argument that, that corporations should not have any constitutional rights at all. Good friends of mine hold that view and held that view, have been fighting for that view. But you're right. But then, but then you ask them about, well, you know, I mean, there's no – the FBI can raid the, the New York Times offices right. without a warrant. Like, uh, <laughs> and and, and, the, and the, the backpedaling starts happening pretty quickly. Yeah. But then at the same time, nobody really thinks that corporations should have the exact same uh, constitutional rights of, as – natural persons. They shouldn't be able to vote. They shouldn't be able to serve on juries. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. That's, that's stupid. So my book, um, which is now a couple years old now, you know, really was trying to, trying to figure this out. Like, where does it make sense for corporations to have uh, rights that are, that are constitutional in nature? And where uh, is it, is it appropriate for them not to have rights? And, and uh, you should stop me if I get too in, in the weeds, Eric, but, I, you know, this is sort of an in-the-weeds podcast. Um, yeah. but, I, but I think there are two ways to answer that question or two things to think about. One is that, one, um, sometimes the right is important um, to have um, applied to corporations, not because of the nature of corporations, but because of the nature of the right, and because of the, the nature of the right is to constrain government actors. Yeah. Right? So if you think about the Fourth Amendment, um, the, the reason of uh, – Corporations may have greater privacy rights than you and I do in our home, um, but the reason that 
the, the Fourth Amendment is not just based on our privacy rights, but it's also based on the, on the important notion that you should constrain arbitrary uh, governmental acts. Right. And so you don't want the FBI agents to go in the uh, New York Times because that's the, that's the nature of authoritarian government. You, know, you, you want uh, corporations to have due process, procedural due process rights, to be able to at, um, claim juries. They, they have those constitutional rights because th- um, the integrity of our judiciary, the integrity of our courts, uh, uh, it, it's, it's necessary to, to make sure that that's, that's fair and non-arbitrary, not just for the rights of the corporations but for the, the way the entire system works. I think the harder questions are questions that – uh, about rights that are really not about constraining governmental actors so much as 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 much as they are about um, giving full flower to the to what hum, humanity can achieve. So uh, issues of of liberty, issues of equality, issues of free speech. Now, um, and so one might think, well, okay, so those kinds of rights we should save for individuals. And what I go through in the book is that those questions aren't so easy either. Like, you know, uh, due process rights, we think, you know, uh, abortions don't have abor- – uh, corporations don't have abortions. So they shouldn't have the abortion right. But Planned Parenthood v. Casey was brought by Planned Parenthood, Inc. <laughs> right. Of, of Pennsylvania. Right. So um, – and one of the first things that I – one of the things I did when I was a baby law professor was I sued the Pentagon over um, over the Solomon Amendment, you know, the, the, their, their, um, the, the requirement that law schools have military recruiters on campus. And the the way we operationalize that lawsuit. Sorry, Ken. Just make some of the listeners. Yeah, that's please. because at the time, um, don't ask, don't tell was in effect, right? Right. Uh, and a bunch of law schools, including BC, um, restricted military recruiters because we had a non discrimination policy, right. and we wouldn't want discriminatory uh, recruiters to come on campus. But Congress passed a law saying, look, you know, if, again, it's, it's, it's go back to the discrimination point. Yeah. You can't discriminate against us, even though we're discriminatory. <laughs> Um, and so we sued and said, look, that's, that's a violation of our, um, of our free speech rights, our association rights, because you should not be able to – we should be able to uh, choose who we bring on, bring in uh, to campus. The way we operationalized that lawsuit was we formed a corporation. It was a nonprofit corporation. It's called the Forum for Academic and Institutional Rights. So if you teach Rumsfeld v. Fair, that was right. my case. Yeah. Um, and – the reason why we did it that way is because law schools didn't want to be they wanted to stay in the closet, wanted to be anonymous members of a of a of an association who sued. So it can't be that corporations don't have even due process rights or First Amendment rights. The question is, um, do do for profit companies have those rights? And then I think it's it's that's not an easy question either because I think um, the New York Times is a for profit company, right? Washington Post is um, Fox News, and often we want for-profit corporations corporations to be involved in national debate. You know, you have these. There have been, um, a, a, and because corporations in, sometimes are sort of coming out in favor of of um, of one ideological commitment or the other, it's not a complete. Um, uh, they tend, you know, especially on economic matters, to be more on the conservative side. But on social matters, they, and that's not always the case. You know, the, anti, the anti-trans bill that was passed in North Carolina several years ago, some of the big corporate speakers, the corporate um, uh, headquarters, you know, based there in Charlotte, uh, those corporations were speaking out against it. Sure. So in my own view, it's, it's important to preserve the possibility of debate, including that includes corporations. Sorry, can we interrupt? But in, in Georgia, here, um, a few years ago, 
uh, Coke and Home Depot and a few others. I'm not sure Home Depot, but Coke and a few others, Georgia Pacific, I think, got very involved in, in anti-LGBTQ issues. And I think most liberal law professors would fight to the death the right of Coke to publicly get involved in those issues as a matter of free speech without government interference. What I loved about your book, uh, many things, but the, for the purposes of this podcast, what I loved about your book and what I think so many people fail to recognize is how contextual constitutional law has to be. And I, I, what I took away from your book was one size can't fit all here. Um, and there are easy cases. Can the FBI raid the New York Times without a warrant? No, of course not. Um, does the New York Times have the right to give unlimited money to spend unlimited money? Not write it op-eds, but actually give money to PACs. No, I don't think they should, just like I don't think any for-profit corporation should. But whatever the issue is, it it, it brings me back, I I know he's your friend, to my friend Erwin Chemerinsky, and I know your friend too. And and, and Erwin wrote, so the most prestigious thing I think a law professor can be asked to do is to write the Harvard Law Review forward, um, and, and he was asked to do that long time ago, in the 80s. And he said, every constitutional law case ever, before, middle, after, ever, requires the balancing of values. And there's no way to avoid that. Mm. I think your book does that really well. It goes through a lot of different scenarios. And we have these values on the left and these values. I don't mean left. I mean, on one hand, you have these values. On the other hand, other values. And now judges have to do the hard work. Is that a fair assessment of what you were trying to say? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very kind assessment of, of, <laughs> of my, my book, Eric. I appreciate, appreciate that. I mean, I think there, there are two um, – I think that's exactly right. The, you know, it's really hard to have a, um, a clear rules ahead of time. It's certainly hard to have clear rules that fit on, the, fit on a poster. Yeah. Um, but there are two things that, that I want to make sure that, that I say in talking about this problem. One is that, that I, th- I think this, this is – uh, sort of a, a, uh, a general point and also a point that I can aim at our more progressive listeners, whether it be law students or, or whatever, is that um, one of the answers to this is not a constitutional law answer, but a corporate law answer. A corporate, it is not required that corporations are servants of shareholders alone. Right. That is a real contested uh, proposition in among uh, corporate law scholars and corporate law practitioners and um, um, among States, even, and it is possible. And one of my one of my takeaways from the book is that look, if you really want corporations to be more progress, uh, more more involved in in um, in politics, let's make sure that they actually speak for all of their constituencies, all of their stakeholders. So, for example, um, I think it would be um, a great thing and completely constitutional for um, uh, for a law to be passed to say employees have to be represented on boards of directors. And and political spending by corporations must must be subject to a vote of the board. You socialist, you. <laughs> I know, right? Um, but the, but the but the prop but but you know that that has been something that's been hurled at me for thirty <laughs> years now. Um, but but right, it's but it's even a, um, it's sort of funny to say that that for the board of directors to be servants of Wall Street and not of Main Street to use to use a colloquialism. Yeah. That that's that that's um, that's not a neutral proposition. That has that that drives all kinds of results, not only in corporate law but now in constitutional law. Once you constitutionalize the ability of of corporations to engage in politics, 
and then you protect within the corporate law world that they can only speak for one stakeholder, and that's the rich people in, in, on Wall Street, represented by Wall Street, then you have a, a, um, uh, a vicious cycle that is just going to get worse and worse because corporations are going to be driven by their, by their Wall Street shareholders to play in politics in a way that will only benefit corporations and that will make them even more money that they can go back and feed into, the, into politics. And this will uh, create this vicious cycle that will only drive down regulatory protections for the rest of us yeah. uh, for the foreseeable future. And, that, and that's why I think um, – so progressives, if you're a law, law student, uh, you should be caring about corporate law, not just con law. You yes. should be thinking not just about um, environmental law and employment law, but also business law and securities regulation, because that's where a lot of the, the the real action is going to be in the in the coming years. And one more question about this before we leave this topic. Um, so, Aunt, my friend Ann Tucker, tell, so I'm I'm proceeding here with hearsay from an expert, not my own knowledge. Yeah. But one of the things Love that it. Ann has said to me over the years is the Supreme Court acts as if it doesn't understand that institutional investors make up the shareholders of most Fortune 500 companies and in the sense of power and influence. And that the Supreme Court has this warped view that's like there are individual shareholders who stand up right, and meet. Right, widows and orphans. They think it's widows and orphans. Yes. But it's, but it's what, it's, it's, it's fidelity and, and State Street. Yes, yes. And that makes a huge difference, right? I mean, those interests are not the – the interests of fidelity are not or, – or Vanguard or whatever are right. not the interests right. of Main Street. Yeah, the other thing that I want to make sure that that we talk about is that um, is is Citizens United and yes. the implications of Citizens United. Of course, Citizens United um, is seen as this huge sea change because it 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 recognizes the ability of of corporations to um, uh, engage in independent expenditures during um, electoral campaigns, and up until Citizens United. Um, Individuals could engage in independent spending, but corporations could not. Yep. And it really was, was in a way, since United was a narrow decision in the sense that it was, there was just one, exceptions for, one exception prior to that for corporations. And said, okay, that exception doesn't make any theoretical sense anymore. And so corporations will be able to spend. And certainly since, since United, the, the amount of independent expenditures have, have ballooned by an order of magnitude at least. Uh, from something less than $10 billion a year to over a billion dollars a year, every presidential cycle, I should say. But here's where I think most people don't, um, most people who haven't really studied this deeply don't quite capture uh, the reality of it, is that even though it was aimed at, uh, the since United Opinion was aimed at corporations, it was also aimed at unions. Yep. Uh, and 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 I'm a huge union supporter. My um, uh, and I've al- I've always have been and always will be. Uh, but corporations have not stepped into the gap that Citizens United left. Corporations as corporations, they they still have their PACs, which are really funded from from high net worth individuals in those corporations. But corporations out of their own treasuries have not really given that much money as independent expenditures in um, in politics. Unions have. Unions have really um, stepped into this gap. And in a way, over the last two presidential cycles, um, the source of most of the um, independent expenditures have come from high net worth individuals, people like the Koch brothers, yep. and unions. Yep. The high net worth individuals, for the most part, have spent for GOP candidates. Unions, for the most part, with the exceptions of the Teamsters and the like, 
have gone to um, the, the Democrats. So perhaps ironically, uh, since United has actually created a net benefit for Democrats over the last 12 years. Boy, that is interesting. In, on, on, on the funding side. Because unions who couldn't contribute to, uh, who couldn't spend on behalf of candidates before 2010, now can have and, and spent, you know, uh, tens of millions of dollars every presidential cycle. Um, but corporations have not. The, the biggest uh, union spender, I think, uh, uh, you, people, your listeners will forgive me if I don't put the exact right number on it, but something like into the 2020 cycle, uh, I think that, I think it was probably the NEA, the SEIU, that spent the most yep. um, money in that cycle. Is probably the sixty or seventy million dollar range. The biggest corporate spender in in those that cycle was in the, about a million dollar range. That's amazing. So, wow. So unions are swamping corporate expenditures now. Now the Koch brothers are spending like a billion dollars a cycle. Yes. So, it, but it's really a battle between unions and high net worth conservative individuals. And but for Citizens United, unions would not be there. I want to add one footnote about Citizens United because I think it's the most misunderstood case of my lifetime. Um, Hillary Clinton wanted a litmus test for Supreme Court justices. You have to be willing to um, overturn Citizens United. She said that publicly. That was a huge political mistake. But leaving that aside, Citizens United was about a nonprofit company's movie <laughs> that the government yeah. wanted to censor. Now, my view, again, as a layperson on corporate law, but somewhat of an expert on free speech, is what the court should have said is made just decide that case. This is a nonprofit company Absolutely. issuing Completely. a political movie, and we leave yep. everything else behind. Absolutely. I think Kennedy got Roberts to hold it over for a year to make the much more broad decision. Yep. But I say to liberals all the time, the result in Citizens United is right. I mean, they were censoring a political movie before an election. We don't want to live in a country where the government censors political movies before an election. Am I right about that? that, that that's absolutely right. And, and, to, and here's just a, another little footnote for those yeah. uh, among us who are who are really into the inside baseball stuff. Yeah. You know the 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 D.C. Circuit opinion that really exploded since United was 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 a case called Speech Now. It yeah. was the one that really took the cap off. Rick Hasten talked about that when he was here. Rick Hasten talked about that when he was here. Um, you know who was on the panel in that case? Merrick Garland. Yes, who voted in the majority? Yes, yes. Uh, you know to to so you know for Hillary Clinton would not have had Merrick Garland uh, <laughs> on, uh, on her on her short list, I, I suppose. Right. You know the the other thing to say, I, I think that um, I do think that the the assertion of free speech rights on, on the part of corporations are is is now or we're about to see a transformation and sort of an ideological shift in it because uh, you know you you now have these cases like Masterpiece Cake Shop like 303 Creative that we're going to see in the fall, where corporations are asserting, corporations and other companies are asserting First Amendment rights to uh, discriminate. Uh, and I think those are, and you and I have talked about this, I think those are complicated cases. Yep. And one of the reasons why they're, they're um, the, I, th I, I think the court should know more about corporate law is that in every one of these cases, the, the court is assuming that the shareholders' views and the corporate corporations' views are are unified and are the same, and that's just completely contrary to basic basic principles of, of corporate law. That's the point my friend Anne goes crazy about. <laughs> that's exactly it's. It, uh, and so I I just uh, submitted a for the first time I submitted a, a an amicus brief from my friend Danny uh, Rubens at Oric, 
uh, an amicus brief in my in my own name, and my I, I'm the only amicus, and I was uh, I submitted it in support of neither party in the 303 creative case. Yep. In order to say, look, you should remand this because uh, you're just assuming that the interest of the of the owner of the economic owner of the company and the company are the same. You can't you can't do that. The other other area in which I think we're about to see like this big expansion in, in corporate assertion of free speech rights is in the area of, of uh, securities disclosure. You know, there's the, uh, the SEC is now pushing companies, just um, uh, proposed a, a, um, a, a rule that would expand the obligations of companies to disclose, make ESG disclosures, disclosures about governance and, and, um, and environmental impact and the like. And there's a group of, of corporate law professors, many of whom are my friends, who, who are contesting that, saying that that's a, real, that's a violation of, Corporate, corporations' free speech rights to make them say things, and, and the corporations are increasingly making these claims. You know, the um, against you know, cigarette warnings, against um, forced disclosures of of conflict minerals and the like. And in the lower courts, they're winning more and more. You know, you 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 have these corporations that don't want to to put more graphic um, warnings on their cigarette packages, citing Barnett, saying, you know, th- th- this is. This is, you know, making making us uh, say that, you know, we're going to cause cancer if you smoke this product is like uh, forcing a school child to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Which is absurd. That is not the same. Right. That is not the same. <laughs> right. Um, you right. know, for, forcing, into, you know, to, you to say on your label how much fat you have in your in your um, in your cookie is not forcing a school right. child to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And, and Ken, for the non I do have a, a fairly large non-lawyer audience. I want them to understand that. Commercial speech, meaning speech basically proposing a, a, a buying and a selling of a product, wasn't even protected as free speech until Justice Powell got to the court in the 1970s. So everything anyone hears about commercial speech is the product of 1970s forward. Not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying right. it is another right. example of the court really changing its mind when there's been no change in text or history. So the only thing that's changed are the people on the court. We've got to wrap this up. I could talk to you all day. Um, I guess I want to end it on a happy and sad note. It's both happy and sad, which I think describes our world these days pretty much. Um, (laughs) So you clerked for Justice Souter. Um, Back back when I first started this podcast, uh, Julian Mortensen, a a Michigan law professor, Mm -hmm. clerked for Justice Souter. Uh, Ernie Young, a law professor at Duke, Mm -hmm. clerked for Justice Souter. Um, I love all three of you. Um, And I love Justice Souter. And I'm not even saying... I'm not even saying I liked all of his results. Or I, he was more aggressive as a judge than my ideal judge would be. Um, but I always got the sense that unlike Scalia, unlike Thomas, and unlike Sotomayor and Ginsburg, Souter was willing to suspend to some degree his priors, look at a case, and try to figure out under his own contestable premises what the right answer was in a good faith kind of way, whereas I'll just talk about RBG because I think she's an American hero before she became a justice. As a justice, she voted liberal 99% of the time. And anybody who votes liberal 99% of the time and thinks the Constitution means what they think it means 99% of the time, we have to worry about them, I think. Um, I, do I have Souter right? I mean, you work for him. Do I have him correct? Uh, he, he's, um, yes, and you've understated it. Okay. I mean, he's a, a brilliant, lovely human being. Uh, incredibly principled, uh, incredibly wonderful to know and to and to to work for. 
um, and who cares, uh, cared and cares about the court so deeply. And, I, and I've been in touch with him over the last you know, uh, few months and the last few years you know, to, as, I, as I have been experiencing this sort of despair and sadness about yes. the court. And um, I, I don't think it will come – I don't want to speak out of, out of school and, and divulge confidences, but, but he's you – know, I, I think it's fair enough to say that, that he's sad about it too. Yeah. Um, so it was he, O'Connor. He, Before O'Connor got Alzheimer's, I think she was sad about it too. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, when he was there, he would always speak so highly of his colleagues. You know, I remember uh, recently Justice Thomas was, uh, was in that, in that interview – he was saying, well, you know, the, the court that I really loved to sit on was the mid-90s court with, yeah. you know, the, um, the Rehnquist court. And that was the court where, that I clerked um, with, you know, in the mid-90s. And, uh, and, and here's, here's one, one sort of story I can tell about Justice Souter. Um, uh, you know, he, he uh, came onto the court to fill in William Brennan's spot. And William Brennan uh, was still, I mean, he didn't, uh, he, did, um, he didn't pass away as a justice, as, as, as some do. He resigned because he was, he was, you know, he was getting older and, and failing some and, and declining. But he still maintained a, a chambers, and Justice Souter um, would sort of borrow his clerk, to, and, that, and their clerk became a part of our chambers. But um, uh, whenever the justice would have lunch, he would walk down uh, to Justice Brennan's chambers and make sure that he knew about the lunch. Yeah, Justice Brennan would get in his wheelchair. Justice Souter would push him down the hallway wow. into into the, um, the the justice's lunchroom so that he could feel like he was a part of the the institution that he had dedicated his life uh, to, even as he was declining in, in health. Um, so he was such a such a gentle human being, and such a um, mammoth intellect. Uh, I've never known anyone uh, smarter or more principled than, than than he was. And he, you know, he and I um, disagreed a, a couple times around the margins, but I just learned so much from him and his care and his uh, his ability um, uh, and his, his his attention to detail and his right. And and you've got him pegged in the sense that he he had um, priors. But he was so dedicated to the integrity of his decision making. Here's one other story that I will tell you about him, and I think this sort of um, I think uh, encapsulates what you would want a judge to be and what I would want a judge to be. Um, you know, uh, oftentimes during the uh, during the execution cycle, the Supreme Court is the is the is the court of last appeal. Often at the middle of in you know in the in the wee hours of the night or the morning, when the um, when the, the the death is about to happen. And literally, you know, you would get these petitions uh, with hours to decide them before the scheduled execution. And you would, uh, if you were the clerk in charge, you would read the briefs, you would, you, and then there would always be some clerk somewhere else in some other chambers that would do the, the, the main memo for everyone. But literally, it would, it would, you would have to ask your justice, perhaps at midnight, we need to, to vote on this. Whether, does this person have a cert-worthy question, and if so, we can stay the execution. There were a number of times when, as a clerk, I would know that there were already six votes, seven votes to deny the cert petition right. and to, to, so that the execution would go forth. Um, Justice Souter did not want to know 
who else voted and what their votes were until he had independently wow. read the briefs, re- looked at the record, talked to me about it. He did not want to know. That's he even even if uh, I could not tell him if it was four to four and he would be the fifth vote or if it was eight to nothing and his vote didn't matter at all. He wanted to make that decision on his own without influence of what his colleagues, um, uh, without knowledge of what his colleagues had done. So what I want to say about that, Kent, um, that's a great description. Thank you for that. Both of those stories are just awesome stories, and they don't, I hadn't heard them before, and they don't surprise me because um, other of his clerks have told similar stories in different time periods than you were. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, um, again, I'm sorry, it's my pod, so my listeners will understand yeah. my stubbornness here. Be- because I have talked to Richard Posner for so many hours about judging, and, of course, he's a unique judge. But one of the things about Posner that I think is true about Souter, what you're saying, is Posner did try to get it right. He had priors. He would admit that. But I think I, – I, I don't – and he was collegial, that he wanted to know what his colleagues were doing and why, and he would compromise with them. But most of all, he wanted to get it right. And I don't see that characteristic in most of the current Supreme Court justices. I think their mind is made up on the cases they care, we all care about before the pay, they even see the first brief. And you said what I want to see in a judge. I want to see humility and op- – not that Posner was necessarily humble in that sense. But he was <laughs> open-minded. Right. He was open-minded and changed his mind all the time. Souter changed his mind several times, I think. Can you imagine Thomas doing that? No. Can you yeah. imagine RB- even RBG doing that? Probably not. And that's what I want to see in a Supreme Court justice. Humility. Well, you know, the, 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 one, of the, one of the things that I think is, is a product of um, – uh, one of the things that, that I remember just Souter saying to me about Anthony Scalia was that he doesn't do anything by halves. Like um, so even, even, if a, even if a case is, is a 51-49, yeah. um, I think one of the, one of the, the, the detriments of how the, it works. You end up, if you're 5149, you write the opinion as if it's 100 to nothing. Yes. And I would rather it be much more like um, Souter or, or Harlan. Yep. Um, where, you know, you can see the smoke of the intellect, uh, of the engine of the intellect yep. on the paper. Yep. Rather than uh, the product of, I've come to my decision and I'm going to write it as if there's not another. Yep. Another, another, and, there, and if there's no anguish, as if there's no anguish. Yep. Um, and and, and, think, and we um, can all criticize Justice Kennedy, but at least he anguished. At least he had real anguish. And, and, and I think that's a good thing for Supreme Court justice. Uh, the, um, I'm no Kennedy apologist, but, uh, but yes, I, I, I can I – can, I can, I'll grant you that. OK. <laughs> and, and one more thing about that. My friend Eric Berger at Nebraska, who's a very underrated and great law professor, Eric wrote a piece – two pieces, I think, about Supreme Court rhetoric and how important it is, criticizing – those who write Supreme Court opinions as if there's 100% certainty and the other side is 100% wrong when it's usually 51-49. And that, and that does affect our political system as a whole. It does affect mm-hmm. the rhetoric we use. Yeah. I, th- I assume you agree with that. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And I, and I do think that – and this goes, goes back to – it's a callback to our conversation about the Federalist Society. I do think that one of the things that we miss in, in, on this court – and in this era, really, are, are the Harlans, the Suiters, yep. uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the people who are, are open to being persuaded, even if they have a priors, but they're at least mindful of, yep. mindful of, 
of that. Yeah. Kent, thank you so much. This has been so much my fun. My pleasure, Eric. This is so fun. I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, I'm sure people will really appreciate the two perspectives you bring to our world, which is a con law perspective and a corporate law perspective. And if I knew more about corporate law, I'd ask you more questions about it. I do think it's actually interesting, but I don't. But thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And at least this time we get 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 to be recorded. Thanks, Kent. Take care, Eric.